me that old time religion. I'm looking for religion like it used to be. Give me that old time religion. Hallelujah. It was good enough for my mother. It was good enough for my father. It would help me through my father. Hallelujah. That was The Caravans with James Cleveland performing Old Time Religion. Welcome everyone to Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. You can find these lectures on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube. If by any chance you're able to offer any support, please look at my Patreon page. The link is in the description. And it's been a while since I've posted uh, a lecture. This should only be the second one for this month. Uh, that's because uh, last week I had something of a cascading disaster where my phone and computer both broke at the same time and I was locked out of my Gmail account. But some of that is partially resolved now anyway, so I'm going to talk about uh, Judaism. So this will probably be the first of a few lectures where I'll talk about the origins of major religions. Uh, I'll probably talk some about the beginnings of the Bible, uh, also Jesus and Christianity, but I'm going to start now with what we call Judaism, since it is the root of a lot of these uh, topics that people wonder about and ask me about a lot, and it's something that is very easy to misunderstand. People rarely uh, can make sense of Judaism if they haven't been specifically educated in it or even often if they have been and part of that is because we tend to look at Judaism through backwards through the lens of Christianity so we get things uh, flipped around and we don't understand how they actually unfolded historically so hopefully by going back uh, and questioning our idea of what Judaism is and looking at where it came from, some of these things will fall more into place. Okay, so if we just start with the question, what is Judaism? A lot of people might think, well, isn't this uh, kind of obvious? Isn't it a religion that certain people belong to? It's a religion like Christianity or Islam or Buddhism it just has different teachings uh, and different rituals and, and different books. Uh, well, in short, the answer is no. Or more correctly, uh, that's simply a nonsensical way of describing what Judaism is. Judaism is not a religion. It's not the religion of the Jews. Or at least it's, it's sort of meaningless and useless to say things like that. Rather, properly speaking, Judaism is the laws and customs of the Jewish people, right? So first we have a certain collective of people who have certain uh, names for themselves, Jews, Hebrews, Israelites, uh, and this set of people has a collection of laws and customs that they've developed over time that they generally 
consider themselves to be subject to, and that's what makes you a Jew, basically. Uh, and Judaism is simply a catch-all word for that body of laws and customs. This word, uh, Judaism, is fairly new. Uh, it only started to be used around the 1400s, and even then it didn't actually mean a religion like Christianity. It tended to mean simply the state of being Jewish. You know, if someone, if someone gives up their Judaism, it means they're giving up their identity of being a Jew, of belonging to this, this group. It's only even later, in more like the 1700s, that people started to use this word Judaism to mean uh, a religion, right? Judaism as compared to Christianity, Judaism as compared to Islam, and, and so forth. So, so this idea of Judaism already is a pretty modern idea, and uh, it's not going to make sense if you try to project that deep back into history thousands of years ago. Uh, it simply uh, doesn't fit. Uh, but if, if you, we do want to talk about Judaism historically and where it came from, we basically have to just give it this meaning of the laws and customs of the Jews. And we have to acknowledge that that's a very complicated thing that has changed and evolved over time. Uh, Jewish people haven't always done and said the same things. Okay, now, some people probably are already uh, confused or up in arms. Uh, how can you be saying Judaism isn't a religion? Uh, it has all of these religion-y sort of things. Uh, it's, it's got uh, you know, a holy book, uh, a god, uh, rituals, prayers... Uh, doesn't it do all these things that religions do? So doesn't that make it a, uh, a religion? Well, uh, certainly you could say that if you want to. You can call anything you want a religion, right? You can define, re it, it all just depends on what you consider religion to mean. And you can define it however you want, okay? Religion is one of these words that, that I believe scholars should never use. Uh, and that even ordinary lay people should use very carefully and, and sparingly because it tends to just cause more confusion. It causes more confusion than, than clarity. Uh, it's an arbitrary, uh, vague, uh, basically nonsensical category that is terminally ambiguous. It is, it is fatally ambiguous in the sense that its meaning is not clear and there is no way to finally adjudicate and agree upon what it means. So when we go around uh, and look at, th at things and say, is this a religion or not? Uh, do you follow a religion or not? Or do you follow this religion or that religion? That, that's the sort of uh, useless question that always makes me think of a particular scene in The Wizard of Oz. So remember in, in The Wizard of Oz, uh, Dorothy gets carried away by a tornado from Kansas, and then she gets plopped down in uh, this bizarre unknown land. Uh, and uh, she, she walks out the door, and there are these munchkins around, and they, they're shocked and surprised to see her. They don't know what to make of her. And Glinda the Good Witch shows up and confronts Dorothy and, and, and asks Dorothy, Are you a good witch or a bad witch? 
Because to their view, someone who goes flying through the sky and then suddenly lands in the middle of their country must be some sort of magical being. So they ask her, are you a good witch or a bad witch? And Dorothy is just flummoxed, right? She, she doesn't even understand this question, and she doesn't understand why she's being asked this question. So the mistake that Glinda and the Munchkins are making is they're not looking at Dorothy and saying, this is a totally new person in a totally new situation that we've never seen before. Let's try to figure out who she is and why she's here. Instead, they try to fit her into the neat uh, conceptual categories that they already have, right? And it has to be A or B, a good witch or a bad witch. Uh, that's the same sort of mistake that people make when they look at other people's practices or other people's ideas or beliefs and they ask questions like, is this religion or not religion? Is this culture or is it politics? Is this capitalist or is it socialist? Um, the, these are all you know, arbitrary categories that were cooked up in order to uh, serve a function in particular arguments in particular places and times, and they don't really fit anywhere else. And you, you, you can't go around trying to fit square pegs into round holes. So I'll talk more later about more of these ideas and terms that, uh, like culture or, or capitalism, that I don't think scholars should, should touch and that I think are basically useless in almost all conversations. Uh, so religion is just one of them, and I, maybe I'll talk more about that uh, later. But uh, su suffice it to say for now, this idea of religion only started to be applied to Jews and their laws and customs in the 1700s. And before the 1700s, people instead talked about the laws of Moses or uh, Mosaic law. And they ask, do you live by the laws of Moses or not, right? And I've seen this in, in documents about people uh, embracing Judaism, people of Jewish descent returning to Jewish law, even as late as the 1700s. Their biographers would say, he returned to the laws of Moses, right? They didn't talk about converting back and forth among different uh, religions. The term religion, uh, just to elaborate on this a little bit, uh, you, you've probably seen there are a million different ways of defining it. Everyone's got their different definitions. Uh, you know, there's the old judicial definition of uh, it means the duties we owe to the creator. Uh, other people say it's, uh, it's a web of uh, practices that shape the life of a certain people, or it's ideas about matters of ultimate concern, or it's ideas and beliefs about the supernatural. Okay, as if that clarifies things, you know, supernatural just means beyond nature or outside nature. So you can't have a sense of what's supernatural and what's not, unless you have a fixed, clear idea of nature and what is part of nature and what isn't. So saying religion is about the supernatural is kind of begging the question. It's just shunting the uncertainty off onto the question of, of what do you understand nature to be and how does it work? Um, but these are all different shifting definitions that people put forward trying to somehow adjust and expand or contract their definition of what counts as religion and what doesn't. And this sort of continuing ambiguity naturally leads to kind of unending, unresolvable 
uh, arguments about cases. Okay, so for instance, I, I was once in a conversation in a religious studies class about is Buddhism a religion or not? And if so, how do you know? How do you know it's a religion? Um, there are uh, critics and opponents of religion, so-called you know, new atheists, who will say, oh, you know, religion, uh, it's all about superstition, it's all about uh, you know, false dogmas, uh, and so all these religions are bad, except Buddhism is okay and Buddhism isn't really a religion, right? Well, all you're doing there is you're simply, you know, adjusting your definition of religion in order to fit your particular case. And people will say, oh, Buddhism, it's not a religion because uh, they don't teach about a god or they don't teach about an afterlife, right? And other people will say, well, but it is, a, it is metaphysical. It's about matters of ultimate concern. It's about the soul. It has a set of rituals and, and practices. It has holy books. Uh, it seems it has sort of a clergy, right? There are Buddhist monks and nuns. Uh, so they'll say, well, it is a religion. Uh, and you can go back and forth about this forever. Likewise with Freemasonry. Okay, that's a topic that I researched myself. And this question would come up sometimes, is Freemasonry a religion? If you ask that of Freemasons, they'll certainly say no. And they have political and social reasons why they really need to say no. They don't want to be seen as a competitor of mainstream religions like Christianity. Uh, so they'll say no, it's something you can do in addition to your religion. It is not a religion in itself. Uh, for a short period of time, I argued the opposite and said, well, it has this mythology, it has a sort of cosmology, it has its rituals, so therefore it is a religion. Uh, but I, I soon got over that and realized it completely doesn't matter. It's a pointless question. You know, it just, you, you tinker around with your definition and you'll get uh, Freemasonry into the category or you'll get Freemasonry out of the category. There is no ultimate way of resolving uh, that's sort of a question. And in order to see why these kinds of questions are unresolvable and why there's really no point in trying to resolve them is by stopping and looking at what people are doing, what people are really doing when, they're, when they engage in these sorts of arguments, like is Buddhism a religion or not? Is Rastafari a religion or not? They, there's a certain common set of questions that people tend to ask. You know, is, is this body of thought a religion? Well, does it talk about gods or deities? Does it have a mythology about creation? Does it have teachings about the soul? Does it have set rituals or prayers? Does it have a holy book? Does it have a clergy? Right? These are the sort of questions people go through. These are the tick boxes people look to check off when they talk about is this a religion or not and all of these things that people look for as sort of qualifications that make something a religion are all core recognized features of Christianity right Christianity has a teaching about a creator God and how that God created the world and how he created humankind and about the soul and sin and salvation and immortality. It has a holy book. It has a clergy. All of these things are 
core known features of Christianity. So when you take these questions and you ask, is X or Y a religion? All you're really doing is you're asking, is X or Y similar to Christianity or not? How close is it to Christianity? And if you consider it close enough to Christianity, then you label it religion. If you see it as more different from Christianity, then you label it not religion, right? And our whole notion of what in life counts as religious or doesn't, even though we might disagree on fine points, our whole idea, our whole set of associations with what is religious, you know, does it talk about God? Does it follow an inherited dogma? Does it talk about the soul? That all flows from Orthodox Christianity, right? So, so religion is just another word for stuff that looks like Christianity. That's basically what religion really means in practice. This is why it's often equally a useless question to try to ask people, what religion are you? When you're talking to people who don't come from a Christian society and who don't necessarily have this hard and fast notion that you have to belong to X religion or else Y religion. Uh, there's a great example of this from a few years ago when a Lebanese-American woman named uh, Rima Faki won the Miss USA pageant. Uh, so people asked uh, Rima Faki, you know, you're this first Arab-American woman to be Miss USA. What is your religion? And she would say, well, when I grew up in Lebanon, we would do such and such on Easter, and we would do such and such during Ramadan, right? And Lebanon is a country with many Muslims and many Christians, and many people who aren't necessarily one or the other. So they would ask her, uh, what's your religion? She'd say, I, my family would do we'd go to church on Easter, and we'd do the fasts on Ramadan. And then the reporters would say, yeah, okay, that's nice, but what's your religion? And she would say, well, on Easter we would do such and such, and on Ramadan we would do such and such. She didn't necessarily think that a person has to be this religion or that religion. Okay, it doesn't have to be X or Y. It's like trying to ask her, are you a good witch or a bad witch? And she simply doesn't know how to answer. So this idea that certain things are religion and certain things aren't, and that if something is religious, it has to be one religion or the other, and there has to be some sort of cut and dry division among them, that is all uh, a way of thinking that comes out of Christianity, right? A, a system of practices rooted in a set of doctrines that one must explicitly assent to in order to then be baptized and be a Christian. So the fact that that religion has this actual meaning when you pair away the, the sort of veneer of pluralism, and we find that it basically, basically really just means Christianity, this shouldn't be surprising considering the roots of the word. So the word and the concept of religion as a distinct sphere of life is fairly new. It, the, the word actually it derives originally from Latin, from the Latin word religio. Okay, so that is the derivation. And many people have sort of naively looked back at Latin and assumed that this word religio means religion, 
right? And they've even found things like passages. There's a passage in Cicero that refers to the religio of the Jews. So it seems on its surface as if, as if Cicero is talking about the Jewish religion. Uh, but actually, if you examine the way people use this word religio in Latin, it doesn't mean religion at all, right? It's taken on that meaning in the modern world, but that's not what it meant in Latin. Rather, the word religio in Latin referred to a particular mental state of mind or emotional state. It meant a feeling of inhibition, respect, or awe in the face of something important, right? So there, you might imagine, say, you're walking through some fields in order to get somewhere, and then on your way, you see gravestones ahead of you, and you realize that it's a cemetery, and so rather than walking through the cemetery, you instead walk around it. That is an example of religio, right? A feeling of inhibition towards something that you see as important or maybe sacred and that you're treating with respect. You know, equally, you might be, say, staying at someone's home and you go to, to talk to them and you, you get to their bedroom and then you realize that they are dressing so rather than knock on the door, you instead hold back and wait for them to be dressed and ready to talk to you. That's another example of religio. And this is the sort of thing people talked about uh, in, in Latin. Religio could sometimes apply to gods and goddesses. You could hesitate, let's say, to uh, shout or play around in a temple to a god because you have a feeling of respect and inhibition towards the deity that that temple is, is, is dedicated to. That could be another example of religio, but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with gods or goddesses. It's simply this mental attitude, right? Now, as I said, many people have, have misread the situation and assumed that this word religio must mean uh, religion, and hence the ancient Romans and Greeks and the whole ancient world had a notion of religion, when in fact there's no support and no evidence for that. And uh, that example from Cicero is important for understanding uh, the history of the Jews and Judaism. So many scholars have argued that uh, Judaism is, is a religion, as I said, and that it has these ancient roots, and that people in the ancient world talked about a Jewish religion, or religion of the Jews, which they called Judaism. And one of the pieces of evidence they've used is a passage from the Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero, who lived around the same time as Julius Caesar in the first century BC. And he was an opponent of Caesar, and he was an ally and a supporter of the general Pompey. So at one point, Cicero wrote a letter about the actions that Pompey, the general Pompey took when he was conquering and subjugating Judea and making it uh, a Roman occupied province. And Cicero describes Pompey sort of rampaging through Jerusalem as he conquered it, but then stopping short 
before he enters and ransacks the temple of Jerusalem, right? And Cicero gives an explanation. He says, uh, you know, Pompey was aware of how rumors and slanders could spread back in Rome. And so he stopped short of invading the temple at Jerusalem, not out of his religio of the Jews, but rather out of a sense of modesty and propriety, puder. So what Cicero is saying here, if we, if we take a step back and consider the way the word religio was used, what he's saying is he stopped short of ransacking the temple, not because he had any particular respect for the Jews, who were a subject people and an enemy, but rather because he was worried about his political reputation back in Rome. Right? But people over the years have sometimes taken, they've mistakenly taken this little passage where he talks about Cicero's, uh, excuse me, Pompey's religio of the Jews, and taken that to mean, oh, so you see the Romans, therefore they had an idea of, of a religion of the Jews, and there's this Jewish religion. Clearly this is, this is not true. Uh, rather, uh, if we look at the way people actually use the word religio, it doesn't show that there was some special sphere of life having to do with gods or spirits or prayer or anything like that. Instead, it indicates the opposite. Rather, uh, people's relationships with the gods were basically the same as their relationships with all sorts of other entities that they saw as being important. Uh, their patrons, uh, the government, uh, the Senate, uh, their parents. These are all um, authority figures of different sorts that you could feel a certain amount of respect or reverence for. And you interacted with the gods in much the same way you interacted with people like uh, anybody, practically anybody or anything. So if we imagine, for example, something people might do, like uh, say they were going to go on a voyage and they wanted to have favorable winds for that voyage, they might go to the temple of Aeolus, a wind god, and make an offering and make a prayer. And then they would go on their voyage and maybe they would get favorable winds and they would attribute that good fortune to that god whom they had made an offering to. In their view, they just had an actual real-life interaction with this god and got something that they needed out of it. In the same way that if you had a patron or an employer and you needed their help in, say, buying a new apartment, you might go to them, make some sort of praise, give some sort of gift, and ask for their help in getting you this favor. And if you were successful, you could look back on that interaction in exactly the same way you looked back on your interaction with the, the deity, right? So gods, spirits, human beings, inanimate objects, they were all part of the same world that people were interacting with all the time in their view. There was no separate sphere or separate set of rules for, uh, for gods or spirits or the supernatural, as we might call it. All of this was part of nature in ancient people's view. And this is true of Romans as well as Greeks and Jews. They all uh, saw 
all of these different entities as all part of their natural world. So this is what uh, the real root of the word religio actually was, was this sense of uh, shame, inhibition, restraint. And if we look at the word itself, the word uh, re, you know, the, it starts with this prefix re, which means again or back, right, holding back. And legio, it's unclear exactly what the root of that necessarily was, but it, it probably it means pulling or holding, right, So or binding. So religio means a holding back, pulling back, right? That is, as far as we can see, what that word meant in the ancient world. It passed on into medieval languages, including English. It comes into English in the High Middle Ages as religion. And when it first comes into English, it refers specifically to monasticism. To It means the state of living in a monastic order with its own rules. Right? So being, being a Benedictine is a particular uh, religion because you're, you're living bound by that set of rules. And people sometimes would even use the word religion to mean a particular monastic order. So people might talk about the religion of Avis to refer to the order of Avis, which was a crusading monastic order in Portugal. Right? Uh, and this is how it was used through most of, of the Middle Ages. Uh, being, uh, and, and the word religious meant belonging to a monastic order. So you could refer to a man as a religious, and that meant a monk. Or a woman who was called a religious was a nun. And it's still used that way in French. If you talk in French about a religieuse, you're talking about a nun. This is how the word uh, is used basically up until the Protestant Reformation. And when the Protestant Reformation drastically divides uh, Catholics from Protestants, you get this long uh, sort of stalemate dispute between these two different understandings of Christianity. And as this stalemate goes on through the 15 and 1600s, people start to try to work out uh, a kind of political modus vivendi where Protestants and Catholics should be able to coexist and kind of agree to disagree about certain matters, right? So Protestants and Catholics disagreed about things like, is the Pope the ultimate authority in the church or not? Should people read and interpret the Bible for themselves or not? Uh, should, uh, is justification by faith alone or by a combination of faith and works? Uh, is the Eucharist uh, truly uh, the body and blood of Christ, or is it simply a symbol? These are the sorts of questions that divided Catholics and Protestants and that they couldn't resolve. And there was this kind of uh, stalemate disagreement over these questions. Well, what people started to do in the 1600s was they started to group together all of those particular questions that Catholics and Protestants fought about, and they called them religion. And they said, these are differences in religion that different people can choose to embrace, and they can agree to disagree. So in the same way that, that a Benedictine monastery might be right next to a Cistercian monastery, and they could live by different rules, 
and say, okay, you do your Benedictine thing and we'll do our Cistercian thing. In the same way, people started to say, maybe Catholics and Protestants have to coexist. And what they did in Germany, in the Holy Roman Empire, for instance, is they said, well, in each of these little principalities within the empire, the ruler will decide which religion they're going to follow. So this is where people start to use this word to mean certain Christian practices and certain Christian teachings that people might not agree on and that they have to give each other room to, to disagree about. And this is the first sort of expansion of the word religion to mean uh, a wider sort of array of Christian teachings and practices. What Christians then soon after started to do was they, they started to group together all of Christianity as they understood it and call all of it religion. And as world exploration and eventually colonization of the rest of the world outside Europe became uh, common and became a big project in the 16 and 1700s is people started to expand the word religion in the same way that they had done to talk about Catholics and Protestants. They started to look at other people in other parts of the world and say those people also have their religions. So anything that we see other people doing that we disapprove of as Christians, say, uh, you know, teaching a different creation myth or worshiping a different god, right, or teaching a different moral code, these things that we don't like, that separate, that distinguish people from us as Christians, we will put that under the heading of religion, right? So these things that Native Americans do or these things that Africans do, their rituals, their prayers, their, their teachings about spirits, these are their religions, right? And what we need to do is we need to uh, understand and describe their religions so that then we can convince them our religion is better. And then we've converted them to Christianity. And there's this long era where, uh, where Europeans would go around and find uh, people who spoke different languages and had different beliefs and different customs and they would ask them, uh, what's your word for religion? Tell us, tell us your word for religion. And the hope among missionaries was that then they'd be able to convince these people that the Christian religion is the true religion. So they might end up, for example, in India, asking, well, what's your word for religion? And scholars of Sanskrit or you know, Indian scholars of, of all different you know, backgrounds would say, well, we don't really have a word for that. That's not a, a notion or a category we really have. You know, they're, they're thinking in the same way that ancient Roman and Greek and Middle Eastern people were. This was a category that didn't exist and didn't make sense for them. And the missionaries would say, oh, come on, but you've, you've got to have something. You've got to have a word that means religion. Everybody's got a religion, right? And they would come up with something. They'd say, well, how about, you know, Dharma? You know, that's that's close enough. You can have Dharma. <laughs> and Europeans would then say, okay, so the Indian word for religion is Dharma. And then we have to tell them that our Christian Dharma is the right one. Uh, so, so missionaryism is the root of this mode of thinking that everybody around the world has 
a religion. You just have to figure out which one, uh, which one it is. And this uh, eventually culminated in the 19th century when it was taken up not only by missionaries but also by uh, people who were ostensibly uh, pluralistic and tolerant of differences. They, they also started to promote this idea that everyone all around the world has a religion and we can describe each person's religion and we can compare them. And uh, the historian Tomoko Ma Masuzawa wrote a famous book a few years ago called The Invention of World Religions about how uh, Europeans sort of came up with this idea and in 1893 held a great parliament of world religions at the Chicago World's Fair where representatives of the different religions came up and spoke sort of like a big UN meeting. Uh, and this is when Europeans started to talk about things like Hinduism being a religion or animism being a religion. Uh, and, and it sort of dramatized this notion that everybody around the world has their different religion and they can all be sort of compared against each other and put on stage next to each other. But this, uh, but this whole idea still sprang originally from Christianity, right? And that's still what the word religion really means at root. So this it all is kind of an overlong, elaborate response to the question, why is it bad to call Judaism a religion? What's wrong with saying Judaism is a religion? Uh, well, it's, it's distorting. It's trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Uh, Judaism and Christianity are not interchangeable. They do not answer the same questions. They do not serve the same functions. Uh, so they are not parallel. Right? In the same way that Islam and Hinduism are not parallel. They're not doing the same things in the same ways. And if we do things like say Judaism is a religion, we then prompt people, understandably, we prompt people to ask the wrong questions, to ask nonsense questions that are unanswerable. The classic one being, what do Jews believe? Right? This, is, this is something I... I have to respond to a lot. And people say, well, you know, if your religion is Judaism, then you, what do you believe? What do you have to believe that makes you a Jew? And the answer is, there is no particular thing that Jews believe. Okay, that's, that's, it is, Judaism is not creedal in the way that Christianity is, and that Islam is too, in a different way, to some degree. Uh, there's no central set of doctrines you can recite, like the Nicene Creed. You know, if you're a Christian, you can say, uh, Nicene Creed, I believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, I believe Christ is, is the one Son of God, etc. Uh, you, don't, you don't have that in Judaism. And even the attempt to put together uh, a sort of discrete set of doctrinal points that you can recite and say, this is what I believe as a Jew. That wasn't really done until the 12th century with Maimonides and his 13 points of faith. Uh, but it's a very shaky and problematic project to even try to do that, which is very clear if you consider that the final point of Maimonides' statement of faith is God will resurrect the dead, right? And that was a that was a controversial idea that not all Jews believed in in Maimonides' time back in the 12th century, and certainly not all Jews believe in it today. Uh, but 
you can still be a Jew, regardless of whether or not you subscribe to that point uh, of doctrine. What makes you a Jew is not, uh, is not ascribing to a set of doctrines or a creed. It is belonging to a certain ancestrally related group that has a certain social history that goes back several thousand years. And if you belong to that group, whether, being, whether you were born into it or you went through a ritual process to join it, then you're a Jew. Okay. Uh, now, some people still understandably might say, but what about the really important core doctrines? Uh, like monotheism. Don't Jews have to believe in one God? Doesn't that make you a Jew? Well, certainly if you uh, join a Jewish institution like a synagogue, that is going to be one of the central teachings that they will inculcate. If you, if you take part in Jewish worship today, they certainly will inculcate that. But that has not always been a definite core uh, belief of Jews. In fact, the history of monotheism among Jews, as I'll talk about more, is very shaky and uneven, and it's been a gradual development. If you want to see uh, a clear illustration of that, just consider the opening line of the Hebrew Bible. Right? It's not the first line, because it wasn't the first to be written, but it is the opening. Uh, it, the Hebrew Bible begins, Bereshit bara Elohim et hashemaim ve'et ha'aretz which roughly means, uh, in the beginning of this, in the beginning of things, God separated the heavens from the earth. Or the traditional translation is created the heavens and the earth, but uh, it's probably more like separated or distinguished the heavens from the earth. And the word for God used there is Elohim. Rishit bara Elohim et hashemaim ve'et ha'aretz. That word Elohim is plural. It means heavenly beings or divine beings. And that is one of the main names, Hebrew names of God, that is used all through the Torah, or first five books of the, the Hebrew Bible. So this idea that God is a plural entity is written right into the Torah, into the earliest Jewish documents we have. And this is just one of the ways in which it's not always very clear that there's only one God or that this one God is, is unitary. There are many different teachings, including mystical teachings, that have run all the way through the known history of the Jews that are not strictly monotheist. Now, even still, after I say this, some people will probably say, but what about the first commandment? Isn't that the first commandment right there at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, that you're, you're supposed to be monotheist and you're supposed to worship only the one God? Well, does it? What does the first commandment say? First commandment says, I am Adonai your God, who led you out of slavery in Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. It doesn't say there aren't any other gods. It doesn't even say you can't worship other gods. It just says that the Jewish God must come first. 
right? So the first commandment actually reflects the mode of thinking of that time when it was composed, which scholars loosely call henotheism, which is the basically a form of polytheism where you hold one god to be specially important and entitled to uh, to the, the greatest devotion more than any other gods okay later jews are going to turn from that point more towards monolatry exclusive worship of only one god and then eventually gradually over time to monotheism the idea that there only is one god okay but uh but the story is not this simple story of the jews were monotheist they've always been monotheist and that's all there is to it it has always been more complicated than that and if you're trying to define judaism in terms of a doctrine like this doctrinally this is the way you're going to keep running into more and more problems and, and complications. You really have to define Judaism in terms of the practices of a certain group of people. So let's talk some about Judaism and what it is and what it is not. And first, uh, you know, Judaism, as I said, is the laws and customs of a certain social collective, right? And they've, they're also traditionally called the laws of Moses or Mosaic law. And there are certain uh, customs that, that have sort of developed and accrued around that body uh, of law. It was not historically considered to be a religion. That idea that Judaism is a religion really only comes up in the 1700s. Uh, it comes up because there is this widespread idea that different religions ought to coexist and be tolerated, right? So if you're in, say, a Protestant state like Prussia and people are arguing that the Catholic religion should be accepted and tolerated in this Protestant country, then naturally you should also argue that Judaism is a religion that should be tolerated and accepted uh, in this Protestant country. And that's more or less what Moses Mendelssohn did, the sort of founder of the, the idea of Jewish reform. He argued, you know, Judaism is a religion and it should, it should be tolerated in the same way that Catholics and Protestants tolerate each other. Prior to the 1700s and through most of Jewish history, Judaism was not understood as a religion. And as I said, if we go back before the 1400s at the earliest, there wasn't even a concept of Judaism as a comprehensive culture or way of life. That was not something uh, people talked about. And uh, Judaism was not understood as any sort of comprehensive system like Christianity or, or Islam. And if we go back to uh, ancient philology again, there is a word in Greek that people have often pointed to and said, look, there was a notion of Judaism in the ancient world. And the word for it was simply the Greek word Judaismos. Now, if we examine Judaismos and what it really meant, this, we get the same sort of result as when we examine religio, right? In the same way that religio didn't mean what we call religion, 
Judaismos did not mean what we call uh, Judaism. And this is actually uh, a subject that the scholar Daniel Boyarin has written and lectured about. I was uh, lucky enough to see his, uh, his Bampton lectures two years ago on a genealogy for Judaism, and he's also written about it together uh, with, uh, with a colleague in a book called Imagine No Religion. Uh, this Greek word Judaismos is another sort of red herring that people have sometimes mistakenly pointed to as proof that Judaism as a kind of comprehensive, coherent system of life or system of beliefs has been around uh, for thousands of years, when uh, in fact that's not true. The word Judaismos was used many times by early Christian writers who were trying to explain how is Christianity different from that stuff that other Jews do, right? And so they used it as a sort of catch-all word for everything Jews do that the Christians don't, right? Uh, so they're sort of back-projecting, again, with something that, that Christians have uh, usually mistakenly uh, and you know, without malice, have done over and over again all through Christian history, is they, they take the core doctrines of Christianity and they contrast them with what other people say or what other people do, and they put labels on them. So, so early Christians were very fond of using this word, judaismos. However, they didn't invent the word. The word judaismos actually first comes out of a Jewish a Greek-Jewish text, the Book of Maccabees, which is a book uh, written in the second century BC, uh, a series of letters by Jews in Judea writing to fellow Jews in Egypt describing the events of the Maccabees Revolt, which was uh, a rebellion in the 160s BC, which is the origin of the holiday Hanukkah, where uh, Judeans uh, rebelled against the Seleucid Persian Empire, uh, which was a, an empire based in Persia, but that really, for all intents and purposes, was actually Greek. The rulers and the ad administrators had all come from Greece. They were uh, sort of successors of Alexander the Great and his generals, and it, so it was really a Greek empire using uh, the Greek language. So the Book of Maccabees is the first known instance of people using this word, this Greek word, judaismos. And customarily, people have thought that the book is talking about a Jewish religion or a Jewish way of life, that it's calling judaismos or Judaism. And basically, it's using that word because the Maccabees and their supporters were trying to defend Judaism against persecution by the Seleucid Persians. And it's true the Seleucids had a policy of trying to assimilate their provinces, including Judea, and to Hellenize them or make them Greek. Uh, so they discouraged the use of the Hebrew language, they banned the reading of the Torah, uh, they and they desecrated the temple at Jerusalem and rededicated it as a temple to the Greek god Zeus. So all of this was part of their effort to assimilate 
and uh, sort of wash out Jewish laws and customs in order to, you might say, Greekify uh, Judea and make it a, a more assimilated, integrated part of their empire. So it seems to make sense that, that, these, that the author of Maccabees was talking about Judaism and uh, in, in the way that we would today. However, when you actually look at the sentences where the word is used, they're a bit weird. Uh, for example, uh, the first use of the word is describing, in 2 Maccabees, is describing the sort of warriors and heroes who came together to fight with the Maccabees. And it says that they uh, performed great feats and they contended with one another in Judaismos. So if you were to translate this word for word, it seems to be saying they competed with each other in, in Judaism. Uh, what does that mean? You know, Judaism is not a competitive sport. Certainly, there are people who, who compete to show their piety, but it just isn't a sentence that makes sense in this context. So what are they really saying here by Judaismos in, in this and the other references in Maccabees? It's not actually Judaism as, as we would use that word today. If we look at the structure of the word, it ends in ismos, which it's very tempting to just translate that as ism, right? And we have all these belief systems and doctrines in English that we call isms, you know, Marxism and libertarianism. Uh, but that's not what ismos means in Greek, especially not in, in ancient Greek. Rather, ismos is an ending for a verbal noun, a noun that derives directly out of a verb. It's a gerund, right? In the same way that in English, you know, skiing, if someone says skiing is my favorite sport, skiing is a gerund. It's an activity with ing on the end. Well, that's what ismos is in Greek. So this word yudaismos comes out of a verb, yudaizo, right? And so yudaizo is this verb that shows up in various, in some other Greek texts, and people are tempted to translate that as judaize, right? But that's not really right either, because this ending itso in Greek is not the same as eyes, I-Z-E, in English, right? If I use that ending in, in English, like uh, prioritize, I'm saying that uh, there's an object, right? It's a transitive verb, there's an object, like, uh, and I'm taking it and I'm, I'm making that thing into a priority, right? Same as if I normalize something. If I normalize high wages, I'm taking that thing, high wages, and I'm making it normal. I'm changing one thing into another state of being. Right? That's not what itso means in Greek. It doesn't have that meaning. Itso in Greek is just an ending you can put on a thing to make it into a verb. That's it. So that verb, yudaiitso, what does it mean? Well, it's just the noun yudaios, Jew, with itso at the end. So basically, it's just a verb that means to Jew. And yudaismos is simply the gerund of that, Jewing. And likewise, the book of Maccabees and other texts use a parallel word, Hellenismos, right? So there's this contest between Judaismos on one, on the one hand and Hellenismos on the other. 
What does Hellenismos mean? Well, it comes from Hellenizo, which could mean Hellenize, but it doesn't necessarily mean, mean that in Greek. It's just a verb taken out of the root that means Greek. So Hellenizo means to Greek, and Hellenismos means Greeking. So there was some sort of range of activity or actions that people in the 2nd century BC could call Greeking, and another parallel range of actions that they could call Jewing. So what does that mean when we look at this line in Maccabees? They contended with one another in Jewing. Well, what these heroes did, according to the Book of Maccabees, is they uh, took up arms to defend Jewish laws and customs, right? So Jewing basically means any actions that show your belonging and loyalty to the Jewish collective, right? And that might be taking up arms and fighting, or it might be doing ordinary everyday things like speaking a Jewish language, wearing Jewish clothes, eating kosher food, observing the Sabbath. These are all things that can be referred to as Judaismos, Jewing. And likewise, if you do things like wear Greek clothes, speak the Greek language, worship Greek gods, you are Greeking. And those things show your identification and your support for the Greek collective. And it makes sense that these words would first appear in the Book of Maccabees. Why? Because the Book of Maccabees is about a conflict over the identity and nature of Judea. Was it going to adhere to Jewish laws and customs and remain a distinctively Jewish country, or was it going to be uh, Hellenized and become Greek? So people during the course of this rebellion had to choose which side they were on, right? This is the sort of conflict, civil conflict, where it's very hard to remain neutral, just like it was almost impossible to remain neutral in the American Revolution. People had to take a side one way or another. And basic everyday things people did, like eating kosher food or eating pork, or wearing Jewish clothes or a toga, or speaking Hebrew or speaking Greek, these sorts of basic everyday things could signal what side you were on right? And you could go around Jewing or Greeking. So what does this tell us then? If, if we understand that this is uh, all that Judaismos means, it doesn't mean a comprehensive system of beliefs, it doesn't mean a comprehensive worldview, it doesn't even mean a comprehensive way of life, it just means taking certain actions that show you support the Greek side as opposed to the Jewish side in a dispute. What are the implications of this? Well, the implications are a lot like the implications of understanding what people meant by religio. What it shows us is that even in the view of Jews, Jews were not an entirely different kind of people from other peoples. Rather, Jews were similar to Greeks, Persians, Egyptians. All of these peoples had their own gods, their own cult for worshiping that god. They had their own laws. 
their own customs of marriage, their own customary foods, clothing, language, right? Things that we might throw under the grab bag title of culture, although I think that's also an extremely problematic word that I'm not going to use. Uh, Jews had their distinctive laws and customs, and people could show their loyalty to the Jewish collective by adhering to those laws and customs, or they could turn away from them and instead embrace other laws and customs. But they were more or less on the level, these different collect collectivities. If you look at uh, ancient Greece before uh, Alexander, you get the same sort of situation among the different Greek cities or polises. You get uh, Athens with the cult of Athena and their laws and their dialect. And then in Olympia, you get a different deity and cult and laws and dialect, but they're understood to be more or less all on the same plane. And people can switch from one to another if they so choose. Uh, a, a Greek can, uh, excuse me, an Athenian can become a Corinthian. Uh, Oedipus came from uh, Corinth. He ends up in Thebes. He becomes a Theban and eventually becomes king of Thebes. I believe I have that correct. I don't think I have them re reversed. <laughs> He's originally from Thebes. He originally from Corinth, he ends up in Thebes. But either way, uh, the real dilemma from the ancient Greek point of view is if you've got nobody, is if you're out there in the open space between cities and you have no gods protecting you, no laws uh, protecting you and giving you an identity and a belonging. And that's the basic dilemma you see in Oedipus at Colonus. Oedipus has now been cast out of Thebes. He's wandering out there in the empty space, in the roads, right? And he's falling prey to evil spirits because he doesn't have a cult and a city to belong to and to protect him. And likewise in Aristotle, in Aristotle's politics, he talks about, uh, you know, the truly bereft person is the man without a polis, right? Well, it seems like this way of thinking was more or less uh, similar to how people in the larger ancient Mediterranean and Near Eastern world thought. That you need a collective to belong to, you need laws and a government protecting you, and you need a god to be devoted to, to protect you. And the Jews had these things in the same way that the Persians did, and the Greeks did, and the Egyptians did. There was, as, as Daniel Boyarin said in his lecture, the Jews seem to have been, at this time, a different species, but not a different genus. They were more or less parallel in these ways to other ancient peoples. So if we want to understand what the Jews were and where they came from, we have to see them as one of these ancient peoples or ancient collectives. And the cult and, and worship of the Jewish God was just one aspect of their distinguishing laws and customs. In the same way you could say the cult of Athena was one of the distinguishing laws and customs of Athens. Okay. this can make the prototypical example of Jewish conversion make a little more sense as well. So there is a process by which people could become Jews 
And there is still today a, a more sort of elaborate and legally articulated process by which people become Jews, right? But when a person converts, as we say, converts or becomes a Jew, what they're essentially doing is they're joining a collectivity. They're pledging themselves to be a member of this collective and as part of that, to be devoted to the Jewish God. Okay, and the sort of prototypical convert in the Hebrew scriptures is Ruth. Uh, and Ruth, according to the book of Ruth, Ruth was an uh, ancient woman who lived in the sort of Mesopotamia uh, area. I think it's I think it's Medes is the particular kingdom she belonged to, but I, I don't remember off the top of my head. But she uh, has a mother-in-law who is Jewish, right? And Ruth's husband and the uh, and the husband's father uh, die. All the men of the family die, and so Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi, who is Jewish, decides that she will now uh, leave and return back to her people in Judea. Right, but Ruth does not want her to leave. Ruth does not want to be separated because Naomi is basically her closest family now. Right, her husband is dead. Uh, and she wants to stay together with Naomi. So she tries to persuade Naomi not to leave, but Naomi insists on returning back to Judea. And Ruth says, well, then I will go with you. I will travel with you to Judea. And she says, quote, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And the, these lines from Ruth are customarily recited at conversion ceremonies. So what, uh, what this is showing us is this fits in with the basic idea that Jews were a people more or less like other peoples. And what Ruth is doing is she's saying, I will give up on the nation and the cult that I have grown up in, and instead I will now join your people, and, and your God will be my God. And this is basically what Jewish uh, conversion actually uh, consists in. So people are Jews if they are born into this collective or if they convert in the same basic manner as Ruth or following the same idea as Ruth. Okay. So why did I go through all of this? Why did I talk about these words? Why am I talking about the ancient uh, Mediterranean and Middle East and Greeks and medis and all this stuff. What I'm trying to do is totally reorient what we talk about and think about when we talk about and think about Judaism. We shouldn't be trying to distill a sort of set of creeds and teachings that can fill in in place of something else like Christianity. Instead we have to say there is a certain collectivity of people, a group of people whom we know have ancient roots going back thousands of years and who have developed a set of laws and customs over time that distinguish them and that mark people as a member of that collective. You probably know, I've mentioned a lot of them already, uh, the kosher diet, right? Avoiding certain foods, only eating pure foods, circumcision, right? A, a surgery that men undergo that mark them out is different. Uh, the mikvah, the ritual bath, 
uh, observing the Saturday Sabbath, right? That's a Jewish idea, uh, as well as certain prayers and rituals involved in worshiping the Jewish God, who is referred to by all sorts of different names and titles, but in prayer is most often called Adonai, the Lord, right? And that's what the first commandment says. I am the Lord, your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And these various practices that mark and shape Jews as a distinct people have over time been attached to a core idea of a covenant. Uh, covenant meaning a, a contract establishing a special relationship between this particular people and their God. Uh, and you, you, and we see this, it's, that's what the first commandment is actually about. And I'll talk about that a little more later. The first commandment is saying, uh, we have a special relationship. I am your God. I showed that I can protect you by leading you out of slavery. And now you must be specially devoted to me. And there are all sorts of other passages all through the Hebrew Bible that echo this same idea. You shall be a nation of priests, right? You're a nation, but you are, all of you are somehow consecrated, made holy by being devoted to this one God, right? So that's the sort of underpinning idea that ties together this whole complex of laws and customs. Okay, so lastly, who are these Jews? Uh, where did they come from? So I'm going to try to uh, talk a little bit about what we know based on archaeology and our best historical guesses of where this collective of people called Jews came from. Uh, and I, I may get through the basics of it now, or I may save some uh, for later. But the first known written reference we have to the existence of a collection of people called Jews or Hebrews or Israelites is the Merneptah Stella, which was found in Egypt. And uh, it records the military achievements of a certain pharaoh named Merneptah. This was a very normal thing to do, of course, in the ancient world. It's still normal today. You put up a big monument and you brag about your uh, your military uh, victories and who's, you know, the different peoples whose asses you kicked. Uh, so the Merneptah Stella, we can tell from the events, was inscribed in 1208 BC. Okay. So this is a time when Egypt was still a major power, but various other civilizations of the late Bronze Age, like the Mycenaeans and Minoans and the Indus Valley, were, were falling apart. But Egypt was still a fairly strong uh, power in, in the Nile Valley. And the pharaoh Merneptah put up this stella, mainly bragging about his military victories in Libya, the country to the west. But it also has a brief section at the end talking about the various groups and kingdoms that Merneptah had defeated and subjugated in Canaan, right? So in the region north, uh, northeast of Egypt, in basically what's now Israel, Palestine, Jordan, that area. And one line towards the end of the stela says, we defeated and destroyed a people called Israel. 
And Israel is a word, it's a word of uncertain derivation, but it is one of the main words that this collective of people in the region of Canaan called themselves. And that is still, of course, has been passed down and is still used thousands of years later. So we have this earliest reference to Israel from the Nepta Stella from 1208 BC. And it locates this group called Israel in uh, basically in the highlands, in the sort of hilly central country of Canaan, more or less around what's now the West Bank and the area of Jerusalem. So this reference on the Menepta Stella uh, corroborates and accords with certain claims that we see in the Hebrew Bible. And I'll talk later about the Hebrew Bible and where it came from and who wrote it and when, which is a whole complicated story. But it seems to fit with the idea that we see in the Hebrew Bible that there was a group of people called Hebrews or Israelites who likewise uh, lived in, in Canaan, in the hilly uplands of Canaan. But the Hebrew Bible is all over the place about where this group came from, right? <clears throat> so there are different origin stories in different books of the Bible. In, in Genesis, we're told, okay, well, there was this guy Abraham, he came from Mesopotamia. He made a covenant with God. God told him to go to Canaan, and he fathered a great nation in Canaan. So there's this, this, this uh, Mesopotamian origin story in the book of Genesis. Then in the book of Exodus, you get this story about there was Hebrews were slaves in Egypt, and this hero Moses led the people out of Egypt to Canaan. Right? Then later, you have the book of Joshua, which could loosely be seen as kind of following up on Exodus, but basically the book of Joshua says, well, there was this wandering migratory group of, of Israelites led by this leader Joshua, and they started attacking Canaanite cities, like Jericho and then others, and they defeated them, and that's how they took possession of Canaan. And these three stories, the Abraham story coming from Mesopotamia, the uh, Exodus story coming from Egypt, and then the Joshua story, just sort of migratory wandering raiders who then settled down. These stories are not very consistent with each other, but the people who put together the Bible, you know, they did what chroniclers will often do. They tried to sort of weave these three stories somehow together and say they're all true in some way, although they don't quite match up. So you get this weird sort of uh, amalgam story about, well, there was Abraham and, and, and they came to Canaan, uh, and, and then uh, because of Joseph, they all went down to Egypt, but then they all became slaves, but then they all got freed, and then they all went back to Canaan again. Uh, but then there's Joshua in there too, which maybe kind of links up with Moses in the Exodus, but uh, it's, it, it, it's very, you know, it's very dicey. Uh, so we can't really get a clear, believable, single answer from the Hebrew Bible of how did, where did this group come from? Who are these Israelites? And why are they living in this region of Canaan? So recent archaeology has helped clarify this and shed some light uh, that helps uh, get through this this sort of confusion a bit, maybe. So archaeologists looking at the ruins of Canaan have found that there were there was a really considerable, strong, prosperous Canaanite civilization in the era before 
uh, the Menepta Stella, and before the earliest sources we have about the Israelites. This Canaanite civilization was part of a generally strong and uh, flourishing late Bronze Age uh, sort of world system, where you had strong urban civilizations in Greece, in Egypt, in Canaan, Hittites, Mesopotamia, Indus Valley, all of these uh, sort of large civilizations that were all trading with each other and all interdependent. So the Canaanite cities were part of that. But then in the about the 1200s BC, these Canaanite cities seem to have started to go into breakdown and decline. Uh, some of them became abandoned, uh, they lost population, they become very run down. And then in a few Canaanite cities we can see that something violent happened. Uh, most of these cities had citadels or acropolises, the uh, sort of elevated central parts of the city that where the wealthier people lived, where the temples were, and that seemed to have been basically the ruling class, whereas the lower cities were peasants, slaves, uh, and commoners, of, you know, low-status commoners. And it seems as this Canaanite civilization started to decline and break down at the same time that a lot of these late Bronze Age civilizations were in decline. In some of them, there was an internal rebellion where someone uh, attacked the storehouses and the temples in, in the high city and specifically smashed the religious idols, or, or I should say uh, the images and statues of deities. And it doesn't seem as if there was an invading army. Rather, it seems more that once the cities had weakened to a certain degree and the elites were put under pressure, lower status people uh, attacked them. And many of them also left. At about the same time that this was happening, that these cities were breaking down and some of them were seeing these internal rebellions, we see a sudden surge in population in the uplands to the east this sort of West Bank area. And we see new people with new forms of house architecture, new forms of pottery showing up that seem pretty similar in terms of their styles and their designs, seem pretty similar to the lower status people in the Canaanite cities. So if you put one and two together, it looks as if uh, what probably happened is that as Canaanite civilization went into decline, lower status people, serfs, slaves, and so forth, took the opportunity to rebel, attack the ruling elites, and then withdraw into outer areas to the east and set up their own separate society. And their own separate society, which was more decentralized and more egalitarian, and that didn't have these big Acropolis-type uh, uh, temples. This is our best guess as to the origins of the Israelite people, that mainly they were lower caste or lower status Canaanites who rebelled and left and basically seceded into their own society. And this is more or less concordant with what we see in the book of Joshua, where uh, Joshua is leading these more sort of uh, egalitarian and poor uh, Israelites to attack and tear down the Canaanite cities and then take possession of the country. 
Okay, if this is true, then what about the whole Exodus story and the notion that Hebrews were slaves in Egypt and then came out of Egypt? Well, it could be tempting to just throw all of that out of the window and say none of it actually happened. And it is not corroborated by Egyptian sources, and it's not corroborated by uh, archaeology. So the notion that there was this mass, huge migration of Hebrew slaves out of Egypt, uh, and that that's the origin of the Israelites, really doesn't hold up. If any exodus did happen at all, it, would, it could only have been a small one. But there is reason to think that, that there was a small exodus and that that is part of the roots of the Israelite uh, chiefdom and its laws and customs. One of the reasons why is that uh, the, the earliest texts that we have, the oldest texts that we have that talk about the Israelites, say that they are devoted to this particular god and uh, the, the name of this god is something like Yahweh or Yahweh. It's, it's actually not known what the correct original pronunciation was. It's just represented by four letters in the Hebrew scriptures, which it's customarily taboo to say this name out loud at all. So, you know, I just broke a taboo by even saying an approximation of what it might have sounded like. So the original pronunciation is lost, but it's it's something like Yahweh or, 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 or Yahweh, something like that. Now, it happens that the book of Exodus, which contains our earliest known Jewish writings, claims that, uh, that the hero Moses encountered this god called Yahweh while he was in the land of Midian. And this is what inspired him to then go and lead the Israelites out of Egypt to Canaan. And we know from archaeology that there was a land of Midian in the Sinai Peninsula, and that the people there had a, an intensely mystical religion devoted to a god called Yahu. Okay, and Yahu seems like it's very likely the root of this name Yahweh. Uh, so it's quite a coincidence that, that these early Jewish writings actually say Moses encountered this god in Midian. Uh, and there, this is one of the main reasons, among others, why some scholars argue that probably there was a small group uh, of slaves or low-caste people who migrated out of Egypt, who went into the Sinai Peninsula, who encountered this cult of Yahu and the basic ideas uh, of, of that cult, and then migrated to Canaan and brought them to this, uh, this Israelite, this new Israelite kingdom, and basically gave that Israelite kingdom a new deity, a deity that they interpreted and represented as a, a god of freedom, of liberation, which could unify and bring together these people of different backgrounds who had come out either out of Canaan or possibly also out of Egypt, and who could sort of unify around this new philosophy and this new uh, god representing uh, freedom from, uh, from bondage. Okay, so based on what we can see, that seems to be our best guess as to where this group came from, who were called Israelites, and who were devoted to a particular god that they saw as their 
uh, group god and also as a god of emancipation. This does not mean that these Israelites in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries BC were monotheistic. Rather, all evidence says that they continued to be polytheistic. And uh, the Yahweh cult, or the cult of the Jewish God, um, grew in popularity only very slowly and gradually and coexisted for centuries alongside devotions to various other gods. Uh, some of these gods were Canaanite. Some of them came from other peoples, Philistines, other peoples around the region. Uh, and people could go back and forth in being devoted to various different gods. Uh, we can see even uh, there are several inscriptions that have been found now of images or statues devoted to uh, Yahweh and his Asherah. And Asherah was a Canaanite fertility goddess. So there's now a good deal of evidence to show that there were many early Israelites who probably thought that, uh, that their Jewish god had a wife, right? a fertility goddess who was his consort. So this way of thinking and this kind of uh, moving among different gods and deities was common among early Israelites as it was, as far as we can see, among all sorts of ancient Near Eastern and Mediterranean peoples. This was totally normal. We also have reason to believe that there was a monarchy period where, uh, where the Israelites were unified among a under a dynasty of fairly strong kings based at uh, Jerusalem. And the first of them probably was named David, as the biblical book of Kings says. Uh, and this is corroborated, for instance, by the Tel Dan Stella, which was uh, in a very ancient Aramean inscription found uh, in the 1990s, which was put up uh, by an Aramean power marking a military victory, again, like the Merneptah Stella, marking a military victory, which says that here we defeated the king of the house of David. So that indicates that in their view, there was a ruling dynasty, a ruling house in that region that had been founded by a king called David. So this is some corroboration for the basic story we see uh, in the Book of Kings, that there was some sort of unifying king called David who then had some successors who ruled over an Israelite kingdom for some period of time. But this then fell to rebellion, uh, and eventually split into northern and southern kingdoms, a kingdom of Israel in the north and kingdom of Judah in the south. And that's actually where the common word Jew uh, and Jewish comes from, is from this surviving kingdom of Judah, which was centered on Jerusalem. Uh, these two kingdoms weakened, and they were not able to effectively maintain their independence, they were eventually forced into a vassal-type relationship with the Assyrians, the tremendous uh, sort of first global superpower empire of Assyria in the 700s BC. In 722 BC, Israel, the northern uh, Jewish kingdom, rebelled and was basically crushed by the Assyrians. So now we only have the kingdom of Judah in the south surviving as a quasi-independent sort of Jewish fiefdom 
And they, in the late 600s BC, they have a king named Josiah who's very young. And Josiah's advisors and the court around him are able to persuade him to embrace a strict monolatry, a Yahweh-only monolatry, basically uh, trying to force the people of the country to worship only the Jewish God and none others. And they see this as a way to hopefully strengthen this kingdom of Judah in facing off against Assyria, the much larger power of Assyria, if we abjure all foreign gods and devote ourselves only to the Jewish God. They declared independence from Assyria, and they drew up a new covenant. So this is the time under Josiah when the Ten Commandments are first put forward. And the Ten Commandments are basically a covenant, a treaty relationship between this kingdom of Judah and the Jewish God, which can then replace the treaty relationship with Assyria. We are now throwing off our devotion and loyalty to, the, to Assyria and the Assyrian emperor, and instead, our only overlord is this Jewish God. And if you look at other treaties that have been found in the ancient Near East, they follow the same sort of wording and phrasing as the Ten Commandments and those passages in Deuteronomy that talk about the Ten Commandments. So, uh, so, the, so the Ten Commandments and these basic sort of Jewish doctrines basically start out as a kind, almost a kind of mock treaty. Uh, this covenant is then used as the basis to justify distinctive Jewish customs like the Sabbath. Judah is able to maintain this kind of precarious independence for a few decades, basically. But then in 586 BC, the new rising kingdom of Babylon conquers uh, Jerusalem, destroys the kingdom of Judah, and the leadership elite that had first put forward this program of exclusive worship of, of the Jewish God and the Ten Commandments, they are taken captive and exiled in Babylon. So there's a period of, of, of exile where the, the sort of priestly and governmental upper class of Judah is captive in Babylon. These exiles then must answer the question, why did we lose? We devoted ourselves, we threw our lot in with this Jewish God, and it failed. We got crushed and destroyed by the Babylonians. So they have to uh, address this question. And what they do, basically, is they double down. And they say, we failed because we were not sufficiently devoted to the Jewish God, because we still allowed ourselves to believe in and allowed commoners to make offerings to these foreign gods. And it was that disloyalty that led us to fail and allowed God to, to allow this disaster to happen. So it is the exiles in Babylon in this period, in the 6th century BC, it is the exiles in Babylon who invent what we now think of as Jewish monotheism. The notion that there is only one God, all other gods are false idols. Only the Jewish God is, is real. This Jewish God is the universal God, the God of all things and all people. It is This God is the creator. And we must devote ourselves exclusively to this God. 
And devotion to this, exclusive devotion to this god has a necessary ethical component to it. Like you see, again, in the, in the Ten Commandments, they, they re-emphasize these ethics. You shall not lie. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. This notion that, um, that worship of the Jewish God entails a kind of complete moral reformation of your life. And the, Bab the exiles in Babylon basically put forward this new idea of worship of the Jewish God as a kind of comprehensive moral system as well as a system of worship and observance. And that this will protect and sustain the Jewish people as a collective. Okay, so something like what we would now call Judaism actually has its roots in the Babylonian exile. And some scholars have argued, with some basis, have argued that this new notion of Jewish devotion probably was influenced by Zoroastrianism, which, which is a, a monotheistic, an ancient Persian monotheistic religion, which also emphasizes morality and moral purity uh, as part of devotion to this good god, a god, a, a god of, of goodness and beneficence who battles the forces of evil. Right? So this idea of being devoted to God means being devoted to moral good against evil. This comes into Jewish thinking, probably partly from Zoroastrianism. Okay, about 40 years later, these exiles, such as they are in Babylon, are allowed to return to Judah. Right? So the new, uh, the new Persian Empire under, uh, under Cyrus has a policy of allowing all peoples in their empire to worship their different gods and to tolerate them. So, uh, so Cyrus, the, this new uh, Persian emperor, uh, rules over Babylon and Mesopotamia, and he changes the policy and allows these small Jewish groups to go back to Judah. They return to Judah, and they basically enforce their reform program. Strict monotheism and strict ethical teachings. Not everyone in Judah necessarily likes this, but it does, with time, take hold. And this becomes uh, the sort of accepted uh, state cult of Judah after the return from exile. And the Jews in Jerusalem are allowed to rebuild the temple, again with the support and protection of Cyrus. They're allowed to rebuild the temple, and we get the second temple period. So I won't get too deeply into the second temple period, but basically... Uh, this era from, from the 500s BC, when the Second Temple is built, up until the Roman era, up until the first century uh, AD, when the Second Temple is destroyed, this is called the Second Temple period. And during this period, we have very extensive contention and disagreement over what uh, Jewish law is and what worship of the Jewish God entails. So. So even with these new ideas and these reforms coming out of the Babylonian exile, you still get tremendous variety and disagreement and disputes. And you have a, a, a series of different uh, parties or, or sects uh, contending with one another for influence and for followers all through the Second Temple period. And we know, for example, from the Roman era, from the Jewish historian Josephus, we know that in the Roman period, uh, when Judea is ruled over by the Roman Empire, you have three main parties called Sadducees, Pharisees, and Essenes. Sadducees are uh, those devoted to 
worship and sacrifice at the temple. Pharisees are more concerned with how to uh, live a, a pious life and how to worship at home. You're observing moral laws, diet laws, Sabbath laws, etc. And Essenes, who are sort of quasi-monastic groups, groups of Jews who separate themselves out into isolated communities, who are, many of them are ascetic, uh, vegetarian, some are celibate. So you have these three basic contending parties or groups in the late Second Temple period, as well as all kinds of smaller groups, zealots, Samaritans, various apocalyptic sects, and uh, early Christians, uh, the Jesus group. So this is a time of great variety and contention among Jews. Uh, the Second Temple eventually is destroyed in AD 70. You get a diaspora, a scattering of Jews. And certain groups, certain parties or groups that had existed before that time are able then to adjust to the destruction of the Temple and survive. And these include most particularly the Pharisees, the people who were uh, sort of scholars who studied the scriptures and how to apply them to everyday life and home life, and the Jesus group, which becomes the Christians. These two groups are best prepared to adapt to life after the destruction of the temple and the diaspora. And in short, the Jesus group becomes what we now call Christianity, and the Pharisees more or less adapt into what we now call Judaism, rabbinic Judaism right? Jewish practice and worship outside of the temple cult. Okay, it is the the rabbis coming out of the Pharisaic tradition who create this, uh, this practice of commentary and analysis of the scriptures and who eventually finalize the Talmud in the 500s. Okay, so I'm not going to get any further into those details now, but the main point we want to understand is that what we now think of as Judaism, the Torah, synagogues, rabbis, the Talmud, kosher laws, uh, Jewish moral laws, these grew out of a particular school of thought, namely the Pharisee school of thought, that existed in the Second Temple period and that was able to adjust and respond to the destruction of the Temple. So there is already more than a thousand years of change, evolution, adaptation going into the eventual formation of something like what we would now call Judaism or might now recognize as Judaism. So I'm going to stop there and I'll probably talk more about Judaism and its history uh, later, but I want you to see how uh, the story of where Judaism came from is very complicated, constantly shifting, multi-layered, and is always tied to the ups and downs of this distinctive collective of people called the Jews who came out of, who formed and survived, and came out of the ancient Middle Eastern and Mediterranean world. And hopefully I will be able to pick up that story later. Once again, if you have questions or topics you want me to address, please email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com or comment on SoundCloud. And if you want uh, these lectures to keep coming despite all the constant technical difficulties <laughs> that I've been having, 
uh, please go to my Patreon page, also under Historian's Blaming. Thank you. It was good enough for Paul and Silas. It was good for the Hebrew children. Hallelujah. It would help you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, give me that old. I'm looking for religion. Give me that old. Oh, oh.